With the debut of Just Right today on Germany's channel 292, 60-70 kHz, we would like to welcome our new listeners to a radio experience I'm sure they'll discover is uniquely enjoyable. Bitte willkommen. Welcome aboard. And always remember, everyone is invited to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and thanks to our sponsor, Paul Lambert, you can hear us on WBCQ 5130, originating from Monticello, Maine, and now on Germany's Channel 292 at 6070. And of course, 24-7, everyone is invited to visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can find the complete archive of every past broadcast of Just Right and much, much more. So let's get started, shall we? The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Excuse me. My name is Vernon, I'm Scorpio. Lacey, me too. <laughs> I'd like to get you high. All right. Because Conrad and I have come up with a new strain and we're really proud of it. Actually, I'd like a snack out of that backpack if you don't mind. See, it's not that I don't trust you, it's just that I don't trust Conrad. Oh, oh see, now you're trying to hurt my feelings, Vernon. Hey, only she can call me Vernon. You call me, sir. You got a bong up in here, man? Load it up, load it up. That's you, you lit? All right, let's see what you got. What do you think, Vernon? <laughs> you responsible for this? Yeah, us, uh, Conrad, mostly. It's good, isn't it? It's smoke-alicious. what up, my nigga? What it do, nephew? Hey, man, check this out. My man Conrad pimping some new product. Mm. Bad tizzle-tastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, May 5th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and available online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. And welcome to our show today, where we have... A couple of very interesting guests who are well-known to many people around the world. One of them being none other than the Prince of Pot himself, Mark Emery, who's in studio with us today. Welcome, Mark. Nice to see you, Bob. It's been a long, long time. It certainly has. And we're also joined by Christopher Goodwin, who's been a guest on the show a couple of times. And he organizes the 420 marches in Toronto. And he's had some interesting experiences over the past few years with his issue. I understand you're now on parole and and uh, had a couple of, of establishments raided. Right, I'm not on bail. But or on, uh, on bail. Yeah, thanks oh. for having me here. Though. Okay, well, interesting. Well, we're going to have to hear your stories. Mark, it's been, last time we had you on the show was, what, about a week or two before you were extradited? Yes, I was extradited in 2010 to serve a five-year sentence in the United States federal prison system, and I had a very interesting odyssey through six completely different kinds of prisons in my time, and... Uh, I must tell you, I found it very rewarding for me. It's an unusual thing to say. I should be bitter and resentful, I guess, according to 
most people, but I feel a very, it was a very redemptive experience and I got a lot out of it and I value the time I spent in those prisons. So you're reformed now, Mark? You're not going to be selling seeds anymore? Oh, no, no. I sell all those things. I sell <laughs> marijuana. I sell seeds. We have dispensaries. Uh, we have recreational lounges, all of which are illegal and they may well get busted in uh, the city of Vancouver combined with the province of British Columbia and the federal government. Uh, we break laws at all three levels and we may be seeing repercussions of that right now. So One of our dispensaries got fined yesterday by the city of Vancouver as we're not licensed and we can't get a license in the location we're at because it's, you know, one of the, most of the city is off limits according to the city licensing, you know, bureaucracy. So um, we're defying the law and staying open as long as we can. Was it worth it? Going to jail and doing all did you get did you get the 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 results the that results you that you expected or did you well, get results we're that getting you didn't the results expect? I expect now in fact I've, we've always gotten results all my civil disobedience has gotten and results that are very encouraging or very positive so there's absolutely nothing about my 34 prisons that I've been in for pot um, that I regret and or the 28 arrests uh, and the many many jailings and facilities I've seen. I always claim to represent people who are marginalized and an underclass, drug users and cannabis users, and uh, I always feel comfortable with them in prison. I never at any time felt intimidated or threatened, and uh, prison is a very polite society. I found that it's far more polite and dignified than the outside world where people can say all sorts of crazy things on social media and not have to be accountable for them. In prison, you have to be very accountable for what you do or you will disappear. It's interesting because some of those stories did leak out uh, while you were in prison, and I recall covering some of them. You use the word redemptive. What did you feel that you had to be redeemed from, in, in a sense, or was that... What, well, if you've got any false, you know, humility or some false pride, um, for me, it's good to hang out with the people I claim to represent, uh, because it reminds me that I live a very privileged life. I don't want other people to tell me I have this white privilege or anything like that. I get resentful when I hear that occasionally from modern university students. It makes me laugh. Um, but but I had two loving parents, and that's so important in whether you're a success or failure in life, whether you're loved or not loved, whether you're adjusted or not adjusted. And most people in prison did not have good fathers. They were usually buggered off and run away. And without that father there, they're going to make a lot more mistakes than I was able to make because my father was a wonderful, wise, loving person who was always there for me. And my mother was a wonderful person, too. And I realized that that's the best advantage you can have in life. It's better than wealth. It's better than intelligence. It's better than smarts. To have two loving parents raise you and die of natural causes over time uh, without tragedy gave me a tremendous ability to handle the slings and arrows, not only of ordinary life, but of the extraordinary life I've lived. Uh, I'm probably the only adult in Canada who's made a career out of breaking the law in principle and going to jail for my beliefs. And so you need to have the fortitude of a loving family that's been your background. And for me, it's been very good. So I, I, I enjoyed the experience of being in prison. Um, it put a lot of obligation on my wife, Jody, and she was spectacular. And it allowed her to come into her own, which was a good thing. And uh, I wrote really quality material in prison. I read a book every 10 days. I was invited by these brilliant musicians. Prison is full of messed up people um, who unfortunately abuse drugs and alcohol, but who are otherwise quite brilliant. And I was surrounded by all these brilliant musicians who made me a part of their band and taught me how to play bass guitar. And I did 14 shows over three years, practiced every day, played 160, 180 songs, uh, always playing the music I grew up loving. I couldn't believe 
um, that I was actually in a rock and roll band and a performing musician. It was something I thought was well beyond my ability or the, or my ability to have the time to even become a musician. Have so, you recorded anything? Well, you're not allowed to record. In, in no, fact, since. Or since have you, are you still playing? Since no, you got because out? as soon as I got out, that whole life disappeared. I haven't read a single book in two years. <laughs> I haven't. I had 25 magazine subscriptions. I had to cancel all of them. I never got around to it. I read a book every 10 days. Like I said, not a, haven't read a book since. Um, I read the New York Times every day and really enjoyed that. Haven't read a newspaper subscription that thoroughly in a long time. So... Uh, I kind of miss the freedom I had, the quality of thinking. Remember, in the real world, we're all reactive. I'm reacting to things. I'm reacting to people asking me questions. Uh, I'm reacting to stimulation, screens, computers, pornography, food, uh, fans, requests, emails. You're always reacting to things coming your way. In prison, you can put all that aside and think quality thoughts for hours on end and write down these quality thoughts and compose beautiful things or beautiful music or uh, contemplate. Are you trying to make the place sound attractive? <laughs> it is attractive if you're a normal person, but you see prison's not filled with normal people. I want to ask you about that, Mark, because you were arrested and jailed ostensibly for selling cannabis seeds through the mail. However, in my opinion, and in the opinion of most people, I think that you are a political prisoner and you serve time for your political activism. And I was treated as such, too. So, I, was, I was treated at elevated level of consideration and courtesy. Well, that's what I want to ask you is like you were in that prison for a different reason than the other people who were there. Oh, yeah. Do you not feel a sense of anger and anguish to see those people put in there for having a joint, selling a joint? Well, you know, people have asked me, am I in favor of prison reform? I say, no, the prisons were fine. Uh, I'm interested in sentencing reform. The sentences were outrageous. Life without parole for 99 grams of crack cocaine is ridiculous. It's all, there were so many of those. But let me just say that they weren't necessarily angels. All these people were really, <laughs> all these people were really good to me, and some good things came out of this too. But for example, when I look at my band member, Sap, a, a wonderful person, great drummer, gentle guy. Well, he got 27 years because he was in charge of a cocaine conspiracy and it ended with a firefight with police that didn't injure anybody, but they were shooting guns, okay? So that's him. And then Chief, uh, the native guy who was always playing uh, with me, really nice guy, always super polite, enjoyed some of the comics I gave him. Well, he was in for second-degree murder, and as he told me, he said, Mark, I'm grateful to have just gotten 25 years because I said I'd kill him. I did kill him. It's first-degree murder, really, and they could have put me in the chair. So here you are, a... a <laughs> A seller of seeds put into prison with a murderer. Oh, yeah. And Chap, the guy who uh, shot a man seven times in the back, was our lead singer. And, you know, and so it goes like that. Don blew himself up in a meth lab explosion, had a scar all over him and blew his finger off. And he was a wonderful guitarist and musician. Um, so one day one of the fellows came up and said, Mark, we just want to tell you that, you know, we understand you're here because you're not criminally minded. Everyone here, he says, you might think that we shouldn't be in here because of a drug war, and you're entitled to that, he said, but you should be aware that every single person here is here because they were gaming the system in some way. He said, so these are not great people. He said, these, I am not a great person. He said, we are all criminally minded because we were all doing things to d game the system, and we all understand that you're here because you're not that way. He said, so you'll get an extra level of consideration from people because you are not like the rest of us, right? Now, funny how prisons can sort stuff out like that, come up with these like moral in and conclusions even while condemning themselves, right? Well, it sounds quite logical to me. Yeah. Yeah. I was just, uh, Chris Goodwin, uh, 
you just had a jail experience. It didn't seem to be as pleasant for you. Of course, you're in a different jail system, and we last had you on the show when you were involved with Vapor Central in Toronto, and then since right. then, good weeds. Um, you got raided. Yeah. Now you're shut down. You're out of business for the time being. Is that correct? That's right. And what was your jail experience like? I saw one of your articles. You said it wasn't my first night in jail, but it's always brutal. It's hell, really. And but you wrote with bail in the next so Mark, morning. You know, talks about prison, and he has been in a lot, and all his arrests too. It, it's I haven't been arrested near as many times, but uh, I've been arrested thirteen times, and every time it's it, it's in holding cells, right? Yeah, so and that's what Mark said was the worst too. It's yeah. the worst. Holding cells are cold and damp, and you're freezing all night long, and it's cheese sandwich, and it's and if you don't get bail well, the next plus day, plus you know your life is in in ruins because they were taking your business, they were giving you were locking you. Know, you know you're not going to be able to go back because bail will forbid you to go back to your business. So. I always end up contemplating what it was going to cost me, how this, it wasn't the personal physical discomfort that bothered me as much as I knew that I was having, I was going to have an ordeal ahead of me. Yeah. Right. So what are your plans? Well, plans? From here, yeah. Well, I, you know, continue on, of course, all this. You're involved with 420 in the past couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah. 420 was just last week or the week before. And Chris and I will probably open a dispensary in Toronto. I'd like to open one with Aaron and Chris. Got to get a license, you know. Well, there is no licenses for dispensaries, yeah. right? So outside of Vancouver and Victoria. I, yeah, I was going to say, in Vancouver, I thought they were being uh, fined for not having proper licenses. Yeah, we got one yesterday. Our dispensary yeah. yesterday got a fine. Right, but they issued 20-something or maybe 30, because I think they added six, four to six more recently. But uh, And the city of Victoria is going to issue business licenses, although they haven't yet. They're looking at the, yes, the formula. Yes, and Nanaimo, and it's slowly but surely. But not in Ontario? Oh, no, they might. Every jurisdiction can come to their own But like food. vapor lounges. But I'll tell you this, there's a lot of dispensaries opening up every day across Canada, and people really don't care if they're illegal. A lot of people will go to jail. A lot of people will refuse to pay fines. There'll be a crisis in this coming up. And, of course, what the government should do is just legalize what's going on now and tell everybody to obey the law and pay taxes, right? And what instead they're doing is they want to take the industry away from everyone who is doing it and hand it to some structure that the government can more easily control and extort higher taxes out of and a certain amount of political allegiance. For example, you give the marijuana distribution trade to the Liquor Control Board of Ontario or the Liquor Control Board of Alberta, then you've got these people who are civil servants or working for the government. Now they're beholden to the government. And at the same time, they can go on strike and deprive everybody because of their relationship with the government, which wouldn't exist in the legal market that I see, a free market. The only real appropriate market is a free market. And what they're doing, this legalization is really being done by the people who enforce prohibition. So well, it's that's legal. something I it's want to get into a, a big time a little later yeah, it's on prohibition the show. 2.0, we actually really. talked about that last week, how they're monopolizing the whole thing. Well, no, that they're and, still stigmatizing us, yeah. too. Normally, you can't go around and say, you people are jerks, you people. But they're acting like our parents and telling us, hey, marijuana is bad for you. You shouldn't be able to get it, so we're going to make it restrictive. We're going to make it, you know, like really annoying and inconvenient wow. and stuff like promising <laughs> the opposite of legalization. Promising us prohibition with the same stigma and negativity directed towards us and the same extra costs applied for our own benefit, which is what they always tell us. Okay, let's take a quick break. We'll be back right after this to continue our conversation with Mark Emery and Chris Goodwin. Why did you do it when you were a kid? Because I thought it was cool, you know, and, and it made me feel grown up. Dad, make up your mind. Come on, Jeremy, what do you want me to say? I mean, I'm sorry, I don't have any answers, you know? I'm just scared. I'm just scared about you trying drugs. Why? You used to get stoned and you're okay. Yeah, I'm okay, but, but you're my kid. 
You know, what if you try them and you're not okay, huh? What if you wind up like your Aunt Millie? Look, I can't control you. That's true. Don't agree so fast. Wait a minute. I'm just never gonna be okay with you trying drugs. Ever. So you call me a hypocrite if you want. Uh, once a day's enough. Thanks. Okay, I'll tell you what. I promise you, I'll never get high again. Ever. Okay? Okay. And... Oh, well, that's a good promise, Dad. And that's to teach them and teach them and teach them, teach them and teach them and teach them, teach them over and over again. Number one paper, number one fiber, number one fuel. There's nothing better on the earth. And that you have passed a law making me illegal for smoking it. You live longer if you smoke marijuana every single day of your life than people that do no drugs at all. So you gotta be insane not to smoke pot. You live eight to 24 years longer if you smoke marijuana every day than use alcohol or tobacco. You gotta be insane to put up with the alcohol and tobacco cops. But you gotta take the You've got to take it and teach it to the people. You can't expect this information. Just like it didn't come to me until I was 33 years old, it won't come to you and your friends until you teach them over and over and over again. We're back with Mark Emery and Chris Goodwin. Chris, I understand you were arrested just recently. What was the arrest charges for? Uh, trafficking, possession for the purpose of trafficking. Uh, in association with the fact that as a vapor lounge, we were dispensing marijuana to the public. Uh, of course, 18 and older, everyone had to be an adult, but uh, no medical authorization was required. And other places are doing this in, in Toronto and, and uh, in BC. And Mark's store has a dab bar and uh, gives out single serving, you know. Uh, but opening on the Danforth and a lot of things are complaint driven. So had I opened in Kensington Market, which is, you know, has 20 dispensaries and um, but, you know, there's no no uh, businesses available for rent there. But uh, the Danforth, I got a complaint, and it, uh, that complaint led to the uh, police, you know, coming around, and then they got a warrant, and they... they uh, you get to find out who's, who filed the complaint? No, we'll never know. So it could have been one it's of your competitors. It's blacked out in our disclosure. So Vapor Central, Ooh. when you had that a number of years ago, the, the, the rule of going to Vapor Central was that you bring your own. Right. right. Most vapor lounges are bring your own. Bring yeah. your own, yeah. But now uh, you're becoming a little more militant, could you say, defying the law, but actually selling it over the counter to 
to your customers and that's why you got arrested? Absolutely. I actually yeah. thought it was the next logical step of vapor lounges, right? Like they deserve to be places like bars and... and well, like Amsterdam has been for 40 years. Basically. So this is a political activity you were doing, not, not because you were like a pusher, you know, out there to make money selling drugs. You were defying the law because it's a stupid law and you wanted to bring attention to it. Is that correct? Well, it also needs to make money, though. So, oh, well, there's selling, nothing wrong with selling, capitalism. Selling marijuana, there's such a huge demand for marijuana that it helps your bottom line. That's what it ultimately forced me to do it six months ago. I was competing with all these people who've opened up, like, for example, the weeds chain. Oh, aren't you they afraid call it of weeds, of gifts, and glass. So you've got all these dispensaries selling bongs, pipes, and vaporizers, which is what I sell, and cutting into my market, and I don't have the ability to sell pot to cut into your market. So I was being eaten to death by all these little ch- variety stores selling imported Chinese glass, all these dispensaries selling vaporizer pens and bongs and pipes. So I had to sell marijuana simply to compete with them, really. Although I have a natural location in a vapor lounge. We have two lounges. Now, forgive me for asking this, but just by even saying that, aren't you opening yourself up to charges? Well, yeah, but we could be charged anytime anyway. That uh, I don't own the so business. My wife owns the it's business. It's a capricious so. government that we have here. I mean, you might as well say what you want to say. Yeah. It sounds like you're in a, in a I don't know, it's anarchy. <laughs> uh, they just char- charge you when they feel like it, not yeah. when they don't feel like well, it. Well, that's always the case, though. All laws are enforced uh, on a whim basis, depending on... If an officer feels like doing the paperwork or feels like going through with it or if they feel there's going to be evidence or if the charges, you know, they won't arrest you if they feel that the police will invariably uh, not be called on to testify. Like, in other words, why fill out the paperwork if the Crown's going to drop the charges? So that we have an interpretive system of justice in here where police are allowed to make decisions like that and the Crown is allowed to charge you or not charge you depending on the political sentiment of the day. But that may or may be a good thing. It's hard to say. And also, the more vocal you are, right? Like, we were open for a month before we went on Vice News. And as soon as we did Vice, yeah. the next day we were, they, they were playing that on CTV. And uh, and that was it. We were, we, we were, the investigation had started at that point. Um, the complaint had been driven due to our exposure, right? So, yeah. Yeah, if you fly under the radar, you'll probably get away with a lot more than if you're overt like we are. Right, but. but the point is obviously to to be as public and, and, and open and flagrant as we possibly can. Because your motives are uh, essentially political as well. They're entirely political. Yeah, yeah like uh, obviously, you, like Mark is saying, you can't do anything political without a revenue stream, right? But at the same time, that wasn't my original intent. It, it was most of the time it's when people tell me you can't have a vapor lounge. You just can't have a place where people can smoke their own pot. So I'm like, I think I can do, I think I have a business model that'll work. And, you know, 10 years later now, you can't sell to those people. Um, I know dispensaries are, and they have medical authorization and they're bringing it home, but you can't just sell somebody a dab, you know. I think I can. I, so, I, I so think I have the business model that works. It sounded to me like you were in a better position before Trudeau entered the scene. And now that everyone's talking about legalizing and everybody's positioning for market share, uh, your competitors are going to be among your enemies. Is that am I am I looking well, at this right Well, especially in way? Vancouver, where twelve or thirteen businesses got licenses, and the others that don't have licenses, many of them are f- staying in business. So of course, yeah, they they would be definitely in the license business's interest to call up the police and complain about their competitors. And that may well be happening. But then that's, you know, the foolishness of the law being complaint-driven instead of objectively driven. 
Do you have any hope for the current process with the um, current liberal government that things will change for the better? Oh, of course they're going to change for the better. For 90% of Canadians in two years, they're going to be totally happy, even if they buy it at the liquor outlets. Because there's a liquor outlet in every community, and everybody knows where they are, and it'll be easy to go. And if you see 20 different kinds of pot there at $5 a gram, which is cheaper than now or whatever, um, legalization won't work unless it undercuts the black market. The black market is the free market. So if the uh, market we have in Canada eventually, like in five years, becomes like a free market, then it'll, it'll achieve all its ends. But I'll tell you this, if you could buy marijuana for 5 to $10 a gram in every community that sell, has a liquor outlet, 90% of Canadians are going to love that who smoke pot. That's fine by them. They don't, they well, don't it'll attract new pot smokers too who have right. not dared to go out and try it, right? right. Oh, no, no. It'll, and it'll be great. And in reality, we have to admit that even if the government takes the entire industry away from us and gives it to other people and distributes Canadians, they don't particularly care. They're consumers and they want good product at a reasonable price, easily available, and that's what they'll have. The stigma will certainly be lessened with the... Uh... You'd think, but the government's going to indulge in propaganda in a sort of a weird, contradictory, schizophrenic behavior pattern, right? Where, like with gambling or alcohol. Right, where they profit extensively and pay lip service to the fact that it's very dangerous if you abuse it. And, you know, they're the leading profiteers of all this abuse. And they probably make more in taxation than any alcohol producer does or any tobacco producer. So uh, they probably view marijuana as the same thing, a way to exploit the people that they're supposedly representing. It's interesting because there was just recently a case, not about marijuana, but about beer or liquor being smuggled across some border in eastern Canada. Because uh, New Brunswick has laws, like every province does, about the uh, distribution. That's why every province had to have a, a, a beer producer so they could sell within the province. Otherwise, they weren't allowed to bring beer in from other places, right? Which unfortunately makes Canadian businesses uncompetitive because Coors, but, but, for but, example, but, but my is one central was, place that produces for entirely North America. But my point was, here you have a market that's very much like the one you just described that's developing under pot, a uh, market that's regulated by government, but at least everybody can go and get their alcohol, yeah. right? And yet you still have people who insist they should have the right to bring their alcohol over a certain border or sell it Right. Uh, on a free market. Well, because it's price pe- differential. The taxes are sure. too high in New Brunswick and they're lower in Quebec. So even the monopoly is a bad thing in terms of that angle of it. At least people won't be going to jail for that reason. But couldn't you end up in jail for the reason, like competing? Couldn't you have just ended up in jail for five years um, for competing with your competitors? Just like that guy who sold turtles and ended up in, in jail for five years in the States? Huh. He was smuggling, tur- and it was legal to sell the turtles. He just didn't get his permit, and he's in, sitting in a jail right now in Michigan. Well, I don't know about that. All I know is that uh, the law is a very confusing thing because the government, the liberal government now is promising we're going to legalize Papa with the severe restrictions and more punishment. Well, if there's more punishment, it's probably not legal. And also, if there's more punishment, they're really not paying attention because cannabis doesn't harm anybody. It's not comparable to alcohol or tobacco. There is no death rate. There's no social cost. There's no health cost to our system. The the idea that exists with alcohol... Well, they're going to start finding those things now that they have No, they're going to find the opposite because there's way too much science going on. And uh, in fact, all the really good science shows that marijuana is perfectly harmless to the vast majority of people. And there's an infinite amount of material. So... That's kind of almost closed science, really, in my opinion. But what happens is um, the government wants to vote. See, the purpose of government is to control the people, right? That's their only thing. Every bit of legislation (laughs) is designed to control people. So by legalizing pot, 
They are not acknowledging that we're free, autonomous human beings who should be able to make our own decisions. They are, in fact, saying you are citizens subject to the realm and this government, and therefore we will allow you to get it, legalization, but we will control it heavily. We will propagandize against it. We will remind you that we think you're a contemptuous human being, and then we will punish you and exploit you for your moral weakness that you need marijuana. And that's what they're going to do because that's what they do with cigarette people and to some degree alcohol people and every other kind of thing. Um, prescription drugs. They demonize you for wanting it, but they make it available and they exploit you with high taxes and an unnecessary bureaucracy to keep the price high. So like autonomous human beings always want to do, we will oppose this regime in any way that undermines the free market. Right? What, what's your um, your take on Justin Trudeau? I know, Mark, that you've sat down and actually smoked pot with Justin Trudeau. Yeah, yeah, I did. And here you have this... August 2003. Yeah, but now you're saying that this very regime, this realm of yeah. Justin Trudeau's, is going to be uh, acting in the way you're saying, very paternalistic. Right. What kind of attitude do you have to a Justin Trudeau who's actually... Doesn't mind smoking pot, but will turn around and, and force you to obey his wishes regarding that particular substance. You mean, how do I deal with the fact that a politician's a hypocrite? Well, <laughs> um, that's obviously the status quo, right? I mean, look at all yeah. these people who rage against homosexuality that end up getting caught doing homosexual acts or people who rail against the drug war and do cocaine in the United States. I mean, there's always these wonderful marvels of contradiction and hypocrisy in politics, right? So he's no different than the rest of them. Oh, no, he might be well different because um, the, the, we're going to achieve our objectives principally with him in government, which weren't going to be possible under Stephen Harper. And uh, so, no, it's all, it's all working out okay. But you, you, I am not expecting perfection. I am expecting a directional incremental movement towards liberty on this issue. But it's always incremental and it's always frustrating and it never happens as fast as you'd like it to. I mean, how long have I been at this now? 26 years. I didn't think it would take me 26 years to get possession of marijuana legal. But we're on the cusp of it and it, everybody will benefit by it. And legalization uh, and freedom beget more legalization and freedom. That's the great thing. As long as the direction is toward more freedom, then we will succeed in breaking down barriers Well, it's in true. The I mean, just think if they ever repealed Sunday shopping laws, brought back and said, no, no, you can no longer shop on Sunday. You were instrumental was as with Bob and the Freedom Party of Ontario in ending shopping laws oh, here yeah, in Ontario. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine what would happen if a government came in and said, well, no longer can you shop on Sunday? Well, the big issue in Ontario where you are is the Uber. Like I had two Uber rides in Toronto yesterday. Man, they were awesome. People came up and picked <laughs> me up and there was a really nice driver, a really nice car. And I said, this is really nice. And she said, this is an Uber ride. And she was just taking me to her place. And then I got into another guy who picked me up and said, Mark, we're going to go downtown. Come with us. And I said, right. And he said, our Uber will be here in a few minutes. And I said, well, what, how does that work? Well, you get an app, you call them up, and it costs less than a regular taxi usually. And I thought they were impeccably clean vehicles, really nice, quiet drivers, professional. I thought, this is awesome. We need this well, everywhere. Well, you know, you couldn't have picked a more apt subject to compare to the whole pot Right, situation. because people love it. Mm -hmm. it drivers, 15,000 people are employed, f half a million people use it, and the government's actually thinking of banning it yeah. because it's too good a service. <laughs> it's too good at serving the people, therefore we must get rid of it. Well, that's a good note to break for the bottom half of our show, and we'll return right after this. This is Toyota Kawasaki here at the Mexican-United States border, where a huge task force of narcotic custom agents is preparing a surprise welcome 
for a vehicle which they say is constructed entirely of high-grade marijuana. Sergeant Stajenko, exactly what are you looking for? Dope, drugs, weed, grass, toot, smack, quackers, uppers, downers, all-arounders, you name it, we want it. And how important is it to you to apprehend the suspects? Critical. The buying and selling of dope in this country may be the last vestige of free enterprise left. sister gave it to me. Yeah, what is that, man? What does it look like? It's like coke. Yeah, <laughs> it smells like coke, too. All right, man. Hey, well, let's party, man. Give me some. Yeah. No, I can't. It's got to last me. Hey, man, come on. Give me a hit, man. No, I, I, I'd like to, man, but I, I don't want to be responsible for turning you into a drug addict. Man, I ain't gonna turn into a drug addict. Come on, man, give me a little hit. It's just bad for you, man. Don't you read Dan Landers? And welcome back. We're in studio with Mark Emery and Chris Goodwin. Chris, you were talking about your own charges, and I understand you're going to be in front of the court again. Uh, in yeah, this actually, week. Uh, yeah. It's my fourth or fifth yeah. appearance, and uh, uh, yeah, we finally got disclosure last appearance, and we're kind of seeing how the Crown wants to deal with this. If, if I fight it, they want jail time. So, you know, if I make if their, you fight it, if I fight, if I make their life difficult, they're going to ask for like nine months in jail as a sentence on me. If I'm found guilty, which I will be, I'm, you know, it's obvious. I'm. Are guilty. you going to fight it? Uh, it? It's unsure yet. Or the, is just they, paying it. Fi- they may be it. offering a deal. The crown is saying that if I plead guilty to like one or two of the charges, they'll drop everything against my wife, and I'll get some sort of like probation and maybe a house arrest for a time period. Uh, but there'll be no jail time. So are they aware of your is, activity as a as a, on the political oh, side? Oh, because of that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like the last time I was sentenced, I was sentenced to six months in jail, and I served four and a half. And they they know that sentence was my last one, right? I've been arrested many times since then. But if I get sentenced again, they're going to want nine months now. No, or but a year. I mean, but when they sentence you, are they looking at you just as as a pot user who's breaking the law, or are they actually aware of? I don't your... think they differentiate. Oh, they don't. No lawyer like. Uh, Mark was telling a story to some friends the other day about when he was in Saskatoon. And, and in my experience, no matter what we say to the court, the, the judge, unless they're neutral, they end up saying uh, a five-minute speech about how I was contemptible and how I hurt the community and how people sh- shouldn't have followed you know, my political aspirations. So um, I, I've never seen a positive stance in court from civil disobedience and activism yet. Maybe it's out there for other people. So you don't play that card when you go to court then? Play the card? I guess I do. It's all throughout my disclosure. Mm -hmm. They see the the advocacy. They actually reference it. They say he was out there, you know, preaching and and prophetizing, I guess. So. So, but those things in and of themselves are not crimes, are they? The actual Right, but you put your head above the crowd, right? And, uh, you know, that's where, you, you know, you... It, it, it's obvious that, the, but, but that was a part of the goal. You know, it, it's before I met Mark, I was telling him this the other day that I tried to get on CHML and the Hamilton Spectator. Anybody who would listen, I was, I was yelling at a microphone and I was 
at the time talking about hemp and Jack Hare and mm. and biomass for fuel and and nobody cared. I I, I wrote long thing. I had this hemp awareness seminar and and I had Rosie Robotham and the MPP there and a 200 seat theater and only like 20 30 people showed up. Um, Mark gives me the advice: stop doing all that. Stop these posters with. You know, 200 lines, it's too loud. Just put a pot leaf, smoke out, 2 p.m., this corner. And as soon yeah. as I did that, CH News, I was on the front page of the Hamilton Spectator the next day. It was talked about by 100,000 people through the community. So nobody and, wants to hear the intellectual argument. They just want No, to. you can make the intellectual argument after you have their attention. Right. Uh, um, very important. Right. So I was on every, you know, every chance I got. But I, intellectual arguments are not as politically influential as emotional arguments. That's for sure. And mm. so, but you can make good emotional arguments based on fact, like we'll get people in wheelchairs to come to our demo because people don't want to be against people in wheelchairs because everybody, nobody wants to be the sick person or the bill person. We're all grateful we're healthy. So, you know, we don't want to further oppress people who already have it bad off, right? So you need sympathetic emotional symbols to get people's attention, to get people motivated and galvanized. And that's what Chris and I have learned over the years is, if you break the law, you're going to get people emotionally involved. Now, Mark, your criminal record in the United States, has that prevented you from ever going back to the U.S.? I'm barred for life. I can never return. But it doesn't States. seem to have stopped your world travel. You just no, came back from there's Europe. There's nobody else I'm aware of that, and I haven't even been asked a single question in 16 countries upon entry. I have never had to ask, they never asked me a thing. And they must know because they put my passport in and my Interpol record would come up, which is like, you know, yeah. 34 prisons and 28 arrests. <laughs> and that sort of singles out the United States as a rather... Well, no, the Canadian-U.S. border is the worst. Canadian government's yeah. the second worst. U.S. is the worst and Canadian is second. Canadian people are belligerent and arrogant at the border, which you'd never see in Europe, yes. ever. Right, Europe's a civilized place when it comes to border relations compared to Canada and the U.S. Canada and the U.S. are barbarians, both sides. They humiliate people. They hold them up unnecessarily. They act like they're gods. Didn't Other you sue do not border do agents it. at one point in time for ripping apart some of your? Yeah, they took apart yeah, my I remember car that. and all sorts of horrible things, and they don't feel any obligation. And you to sued them successfully, didn't drugs, you? No, no, I didn't sue them successfully. Oh, what happened? Um, ultimately, they don't need to apologize, and it's within the purview of their job. Really? Um, they say we try and re, you know re reaffix everything to the best of their ability, but they don't. It's just like when they raid you, they destroy your place, they do all sorts of horrible things, they take stuff they're not supposed to, they in- shoot your dog, they intimidate your family, they arrest wrong people. Uh, police figure that even if you get away with this, we're going to make sure we scare you straight, right? So they're working from the premise that you're always guilty. And therefore, anything they do to you, you deserve it. So your trip to Europe must have been a bit of a fresh uh, air for you. Um, did you do any political advocacy over there, meet with um, Oh, that's all advocates? it was. I was meeting, looking at massive grow operations in Spain where it's by and large legal. And Spain produces most of the marijuana for Europe. Um, they have huge, large-scale facilities, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them in any Spanish possession, including the Canary Islands. I went to the Canary Islands for five Days and they are growing huge scads of weeds. This is a couple of seven islands off the coast of Africa that Spain owns, and people there grow like crazy. And the great thing is, is that if you're a European from Italy or England or Germany, you can go to Spain and grow pot just like any Spaniard can because you have free mobility rights in Europe. There are no borders and no restrictions on working as long as you're from that part of the European Union, which is awesome. I would travel 
from Barcelona to Toulouse, for example, and there's no border between the two of them if you go over land. So I just would get all my pot in Spain and take it with me to France. And when I was in Slovenia, I got pot there and took it with me throughout all of Italy. And there's absolutely no border. A guy just drove up, and next thing you know, I'm in Trieste, a beautiful city that was once part of Slovenia, that is now part of Italy, that they sacrificed half a million people to gain in World War I. And, uh, but really, I, I thought Europe was wonderful for that reason. Now, the, Europe is not wonderful for other reasons. Um, for example, in the case of marijuana, everybody in Europe mixes their marijuana with tobacco. And I explained to them over and over again, you're never going to legalize marijuana as long as you're mixing it with tobacco because no mother, like in North America, we can say, because we smoke pure here, that marijuana is safe. It's good for you. It's not criminogenic. It's not going to be a health problem. It doesn't impair your ability. If I, something, it, if, if marijuana impaired people, I wouldn't advocate for it. So, uh, you know, I, I don't accept any of the negative criticisms that some people launch against cannabis. But in Europe, if anybody who's curious about cannabis as a consequence is going to become addicted to tobacco, and they will, then I would find that a very difficult thing to politically justify if I was a, a mom with kids who were going to be approaching adulthood. And I don't know what happened. But still, happened. that's just a personal choice, mixing the tobacco with... Uh, but it's 97%. Almost everybody in Europe really? does it. And they don't even agree they're addicted until I uh, humiliate them and shame them into smoking pure marijuana, and then they realize that they've gone six hours without tobacco and now they're jonesing for some tobacco. Right. But then they're, like all people who are addicted to something, they rationalize their self-destructive behavior with some platitude that makes them feel good, But as opposed to saying, I'm so weak-willed that I can't go without it, right? Which is what the source of all addiction is, is actually the source of all addiction in my experience when I ran a drug addiction clinic was that the absence of the biological father in a child's life was so utterly significant that it influenced 95% of all people to become addicted to dangerous drugs or substances or self-destructive behavior. If you grew up with two loving parents who were always there and reminded you they loved you and were always there, I've never met a person who's putting needles in their arms or doing methamphetamine or cocaine um, because they can handle the slings and arrows of ordinary life and they have no bitterness what, and what, resentment. What brought you to that conclusion of all conclusions that having parents is the, because is I the key? Because it's true. If, it, it, it applies to me too. I, I, I know what you're saying, but I didn't realize this was such a big pattern. Oh, yeah. It's the only pattern. The um, only pattern. Every, yeah, there are no other patterns for addiction. When I, I, I treated 65 people with a rare African plant extract called ibogaine, ibogaine hydrochloride. It's becoming much more commonly used now for drug addiction. But I did this from 2002 to 2004. And I paid for everything. It cost me close to a quarter million dollars to treat 65 people over a two-year period, one after another. And I'd ask them one question at first. I'd say, where, where are you from? They, oh, I'm from Poughkeepsie, New York, or I'm from Canton, Ohio. Or, and uh, then I'd say, well, tell me what life was like with your mother and father. Very neutral question. And invariably, they would say, I didn't know my father. My parents split up when I was four or eight, or he died, or I was adopted, or he was in the military, or he was on the road, or he was just never around. And that was the common denominator. Is and it, it was the always the father. Never father, the mother. that's Every last one of them yeah. had a mother. But the mother's always overwhelmed. She can't possibly look after her. And mothers do 90% of the parenting. They do. They clothe you. They feed you. They make sure you got money for school. Call me here. I'll pick you up. I'll wash your clothes. I'll clean the house. Don't do this. Get your homework done. My father really never did any of that stuff. But my father was home every night at 5 o'clock, and he threw the baseball to me for half an hour and asked me if I was any problems, or he'd shoot the hockey puck for half an hour, and then, and then he'd say, well, son, I have to go inside now and see your mother and do what I have to do, but if there's anything you need, come in, because you know I love you. 
And uh, my father was always there for great advice. Well, I knew your dad. Your dad was a great guy. Yeah, he was. And uh, so that's why I'm so well-adjusted and able to handle prison and slings and arrows of ordinary life in prisons because I had this loving background. So wherever I go, I feel privileged and blessed that I grew up with this marvelous, wonderful advantage. And I had tremendous sympathy for these drug-addicted people because their life was miserable. It was horrible. They had been making bad decisions their whole life since their father wasn't around, and they felt alienated and rejected and angry. And what do those people do? They hang around with other alienated, rejected, angry people in high school, and they begin to experiment with sex and drugs far before they should, in dangerous ways they shouldn't, and they won't listen to people because they didn't grow up listening to anybody, strong male influential figures. Um, And even then, substitute male figures are not good enough. I met a person, five of my people were adopted, and they said, oh, my adopted parents were wonderful. But I still wondered about why I was rejected. Steve Jobs is an interesting case study. He was uh, put up for adoption by his parents, and then somebody adopted him, and after a month they took him back, right? And this haunted him his whole life, and he was a very disturbed individual, albeit a genius. But Steve Jobs was very disturbed and, and had very poor relationships with people as a basis of that rejection when he was young. And, and he didn't know those people, but it still bothered him his whole life long. And the resentment and alienation showed up in his human relations. And this is, I found that there is no exception to this. Whenever I see people smoking cigarettes, and I know they would have started when they were 14, and if you're starting cigarette smoking when you're 14, you've probably got some disheveled parental situations. Probably your dad's not around, right? And I would find that with anybody. Anybody who's got a drinking problem, a drug problem, a tobacco problem. Because I would ask them, why are you addicted? And they would, they don't really have an answer. And I'll say, are these issues you're not worried? Because it's just, you're conceding you have a lack of will to stop doing something that is killing you and isn't rewarding you in any compensatory manner. So this is irrational behavior. Why do you keep doing it? And if people keep doing irrational, self-destructive behavior, you have to look for the source of that because it's, it's completely unfathomable to the logical mind, like mine. And I grew up with two loving parents, so I really don't understand why people would do that, but I just know they do do that, and I have a great deal of sympathy for them on one level. But on the other hand, they need to reassert their own will, and that means recognizing how this happened, accepting that it happened, you have to accept, and not blaming people, because people who blame people are messed up, right? Even people who blame the government. That's you know, No, I know all kinds of people who smoke cigarettes and had great parents. Uh, I'm not buying it, though. Really? But at the end of the day, you're the master of your own fate. No, you're not necessarily. The circumstances by which we got to a place in time are co-masters of your fate. I'm a really lucky guy. I've had great parents. I've had a lot of good luck. I've been able to do whatever I wanted my whole life long, including going to jail. And I've lived a privileged, wonderful existence. Other people get much, much worse cards dealt with them. Horrible cards of disease, lousy parents, alcoholic parents, grew up in a shitty town, bad place. But aren't you playing the blame game now, though? No, no, I'm giving them an excuse because they actually are entitled to one. Whereas I have no excuses. If I misbehave and do self-destructive things, I am cognizantly in disarray mentally because I have no excuse. I had a wonderful childhood, wonderful parents. I've had a wonderful life. I lived in the best country in the world to live in. Canada, I mean, I I pity the poor people who are brought up in dictatorships or or places where they're afraid to speak or, or their parents were disappeared or... No, I've lived a perfect privileged life being a Canadian white person, a male in a period where males were treated better. 
um, and given all the opportunity that my dad wanted me to have because he himself did not have anything like I had. He grew up in a working class community and he was always going to be considered a working class person. And that's why he moved to Canada so his children wouldn't grow up being pigeonholed in a certain economic class and status for the rest of their life. And he said it was either Canada or Australia I was going to go to because both those seemed to be classless societies. So thank you, Father, for moving here in 1951 and renouncing your British citizenship <laughs> and uh, bringing, bringing your sperm to Canada and creating <laughs> me because I just can't see my life being as happy and pleasant and successful if I was brought up in any other place. Well, you've certainly opened the, the topic to a whole new uh, dimension. have to take a break now and we'll be back to wrap up. Okay. Okay. I want you to try this on. Testing one, two. No, no, no. No, it goes right on your head. There you go. Okay. What kind of tape recorder is this? No, it's not a tape recorder. What I'm going to do is I'm going to be testing your brain waves. You're not a reporter? No, no, no. I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist. Well, I thought you were a reporter from High Times, man. No. I was waiting for my little gift. <laughs> That's funny. Let me see something just for a second here. Just amazing. Well, according to uh, your brainwave charts, your uh, solution is pretty darn simple. You need a job. A blowjob? No, 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 no. Money. Sure, I'll pay, man. No, no, no. You see, you're getting way off the track here. What you need is some sort of occupation that can just get your mind right off that tree. Who? Tree. Your woman. You remember the one you're trying to forget? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. According to this, you are actually well-suited for four different occupations. I have to tell you, though, that you didn't uh, test too high on the chart here. You're, you're somewhere between plankton and toaster. But that still leaves four jobs open for you, either politician, lawyer, boat anchor, or roadie. I'm a roadie, man. I really am. I got a truck and everything. Well, splendid. Then when I snap my fingers... You'll be a roadie. You'll be back on the road again, forgetting all about this tree business. And write me a check for $10,000. Cool. Uh, I know, Mark, when you were going through your trials and tribulations, you did have support from certain public figures. One of them was Tommy Chong. Do you keep in touch with him at all? Oh, yeah. See you do. Tommy at least once a year and uh, talk with him more frequently. And he's doing really well. And oddly enough, here's a, he's another guy, in my opinion, who benefited by jail time. Because prior to that, his career was on the skids, in my opinion. He was not being, he was not coherent as a performer, entertainer, advocate. He went to jail. That really focused him. He wrote a book in prison. Um, he reignited his career, and he got a real, a real sense of purpose and coherency to his life and his advocacy after that. So he also benefited. By well, I, I'm, al I'm almost getting the opinion we all should be given <laughs> a year off to just find ourselves. Prison sounds so attractive. Because if you're normal, it's a good experience. Yeah. But if you're, oh, not, if you're normal, not normal, it's not a beneficial experience, mm. right? But if you're a normal person, yeah, the opportunity to read, to think, to contemplate, to write, to consider the meaning of the universe, to consider the, the position of unfortunate people, disadvantaged people, you know, people who, when you're in prison, you're you're looking at some people, you go, you are going to be here no matter what. You know, like mm -hmm. you can just see this is the direction their life would invariably have to go. Now, right? now j just to try and get a few quick questions in before the show wraps up, 
Uh, your thoughts on politics in general? I know you're not allowed back in the States. Um, Donald Trump, any thoughts of what's going on there? Do you see a change? Uh, I'm surprised that under Obama that you had your experience. See, I'm a libertarian that originally I supported Rand Paul, and he got mm. out of the race too early, which is unfortunate, although I understand why, because all the idealistic young people were going with Bernie Sanders, whom I easily admire more than any other candidate in this one, even though he's an avowed socialist. It's because a socialist overlaps about 50% on issues with me, because there are those left-leaning ones that want to diminish the size of the military, the surveillance state, the drug war, and all that sort of stuff. And he's very principled, and he makes a lot of sense on those. And when he speaks about $15 an hour minimum wage, well, he's really just articulating what the mainstream establishment people are saying anyway, or doing like in Seattle and Washington and various places. So to me, the socialism he advocates is what we have in Canada. And the left socialism on the issues I agree with, we don't have in Canada. So he's a much better improvement than either Hillary Clinton, who is a loathsome, dislikable person, uh, politically and personally, and Donald Trump, who's easily the most vulgar person I've ever seen run for high office. Um, I've never seen such a cavalier, carelessly sloppy thing where a guy just demagoguery articulates people's hate and has enough support within America. I think the, the, what we see now is, an, is a testament to the terrible education system the United States has, that people don't understand civics or freedom or liberty or the Constitution. It speaks to their failure to bring blacks into the mainstream still after all these years. Um, and it speaks to their prison industrial complex and their military industrial complex. You see a, you see a big change in the U.S. ever coming? Like, well, it's almost hard to say which country is legalizing cannabis faster because they're doing it on oh, a state-by-state well, state basis. Well, down both of them will be legal in five years. Canada and the United States will be pretty in sync in five years at a federal level. Mexico is going to legalize too. And Costa Rica legalized for medical this week. And well, Columbia we just last covered last week on the show that Mexico actually in November declared that smoking pot was actually a human right and yes, producing that's it. Right. Is, uh, so and, they're going to follow up on that and start drafting laws that, that, that follow that. But a lot of countries are too. And that's why, we, and Thailand, I was just there in Thailand to help them. And uh, the Thai government announced uh, uh, the day I was there at a special law reform commission conference that they were going to now legalize medical marijuana, begin clinical trials, and provide medical marijuana free for ties in certain circumstances. So, you know, that's the first Asian government to actually acknowledge that. So these things are changing, and, you know, you, you never get as much as you want, but you get enough to encourage you to keep pushing. Maybe now is a good time to ask you a question that I have in my mind, both uh, you, Chris, and you, Merrick, is that you're both advocates for the um, complete legalization of cannabis. And let's just uh, project our minds maybe uh, 5, 10, 15 years in the future when it's legal worldwide and people's records have been expunged, those who have been convicted of uh, nonviolent cannabis-related crimes. What, if anything, would be a passion for you to advocate for in the future? Well, first of all, I'd go around the world to make sure marijuana is legal in other countries, but also legalizing all drugs is a as a political imperative. And yet, the so public, marijuana advocacy is a gateway to other. It is because other advocacy. Seventy percent of the public wants legal marijuana, but only ten to fifteen percent of the general population wants to legalize all drugs. So obviously, a lot of education is required, and the same process. 
uh, of which I will not live long enough to see completed if it takes 40 years to legalize all drugs like it did to legalize marijuana. When you say legalize, do you mean the same by legalize as just ending prohibition? I see the two terms. See, a lot of people have asked me, like, what does a legalization activist do when it's legalized, right? Mm -hmm. But they're assuming that I'm in favor of legalization. I'm a repeal activist. So Maybe I should have used that word, but so you know what I mean. Yeah, get it off the books. Well, any law that is now on the books that legalization entails, if those laws are unjust, then they must be repealed as well, mm-hmm. right? All unjust laws must be repealed. And that's where I think my advocacy started from, right, is, is unjust laws. And uh, so you- I've been a repeal activist for that reason. And so any... I may have a passion for one or another in the future, uh, government intrusion and other things, and maybe fight taxation in a different way. Like the marijuana movement actually might be perfect for this because we've lived the last 40 to 80 years without any taxation, any regulation, and now we're about to be imposed strict regulation. So it's going to be interesting going through the 2020s or something. How is our community going to deal with having to pay, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent to the government? So do do either of you see yourself segueing back into the industry in a legitimate way, or do you think the existing people out there see you as the enemy right now, or is there... Oh, no, I'll I'll be able to put my name on brand. For the rest of my life, I, I I would expect that there'll be Prince of Pot distribution, Prince of Pot, Mark Emery's marijuana experience locations and stuff like that. Um, so I'm going to make some mugs. Yeah, all <laughs> those <laughs> things, right? Because uh, you know, as far as there are more, there are better recognized marijuana entertainers like Tommy Chung and what have you. But marijuana activists, I'm probably the most recognized name in the world, and that will have value in a period when it's legal because I can be trusted. And I wouldn't put my name on anything very lightly either. So in time, when I find an appropriate project that I can be a participant in and maintain the quality and ethics of that company, and what we're doing, then I'll probably throw my lot in with some legal entity like that. Um, But I'd be just as happy running a little resort hotel in Trinidad or Jamaica or some nice tropical place. I really enjoy Canada, but I like traveling around the world too. So I really enjoy being in Europe and I've got endless invitations to go address people everywhere on earth, including the Philippines, Indonesia. And if they pay my airfare and my hotel, then I'm on, I'm going because... What do you generally uh, talk about most, the law or the drug? I generally talk... Anything they want that inspires them, because the reason they're bringing me is because they're frustrated. They're frustrated by the lack of progress, the fact that nobody cares, the fact that as far as I know, the outside world doesn't give a rat's ass for what they're doing or what their laws are. So when I go there, I tell them I'm here because you want me here, you need me here, I'm here to give you the voice because I've been all over the world. And believe me, you may be cynical, you may be sad, but things are changing and they're going to change here too because it's a worldwide wave that's happening. But when they're isolated, even with social media, and thank goodness for social media that they can connect up with more optimistic outlooks of people in other countries and communities, but uh, they still want someone. When I go there, it's like saying they're real. Like when I went to the Thailand Highland Festival there and 1,300 people paid 420 baht to celebrate marijuana while there's 100 military, airborne army, special ops cops and police people right there beside me the whole time and telling them that they can't put me on stage nor can I be allowed on television, right? And yet they still have a great old time and I, you know, we still manage to do it and it's, it gets covered by local media, just not me <laughs> and all that. You know, they're saying, you know, it's great that this happened when you are here to acknowledge us, to verify that what we're doing is important enough that you travel halfway around the earth to come here to you know, see us. A lot of people would have a lot of fear if they were just pulled over for speeding. You guys seem to have no fear 
Am I wrong? No, no, I, I have fear because I would be reckless if I had no fear. Fear is a good thing to have. When I was in Thailand, everybody said, Mark, it's very strict. It's very severe penalties. And uh, I, you, I, my hosts and I were taking pictures of my bong hitting, and I put them on Instagram. Uh, and then they thought, Mark, maybe you shouldn't do that because we have a lot of serious stuff going on. We have a law reform commission symposium we're putting on. We have this big, I said, I agree with you. Let's get rid of it. We don't need to be attracting trouble. We don't need just to show people we're cool in Bangkok. I said, and same with me, people worry about me. Why would I put them in a position where they have to worry about me by acting reckless? Fear is a good thing. It checks your behavior. Yeah. It Mm. did yeah. And fear of alienating those you love, fear of alienating the system the from side, our yeah. opposite, our, our, you know, you've got to come up with a balanced approach, right? Well, I fear our time is up, eh, Bob? That's for sure, and we'll have to let the smoke settle as we wind down our show today. And thank you once again, Chris Goodwin and Mark Emery, for joining us. Um, a lot of people are going to be hearing this, and I'm very curious to see what kind of reaction we will get to your message and how it's going to trans- transpire in the future. And if any of your listeners want to get hold of me, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and all social media, Instagram, and I encourage them to do so. Absolutely. And that's it for today. Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Now who has my father? Uh oh Someone has some daddy issues Nothing could be my father from the truth Who? You said my father No I didn't How? Didn't Did not Shabba For me this is a dad issue Dad issue Dead dad Dead be dad Daddy didn't love me